No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. You are our hope, you are our joy, you are our overcoming king, so we sing hallelujah, Jesus is alive. And life is worth the living just because he lives. We've, we've sung these wonderful songs and thank you Alex for leading us in worship that celebrates the, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. And it's great to sing these songs of hope and joy and confidence and it's great to be able to stand up here and and say, He is risen. But why is that such a great feeling? Why is it so enjoyable, exciting? Is it just a rush of sentiment or emotion? Is it, are we getting caught up in, in um, feeling? Or is there something more substantial? And so in the time that we have left today, I want to explore the question that you see up on the screen there. Why why celebrate the resurrection? And we've touched upon it, uh, a few of us have in our time of sharing, and Alex has touched upon it in his leading, in the the reading of scripture as well. But the reason I want to, uh, uh, I ask the question is because I want us to explore the intent in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want us to understand what it has accomplished. Two days ago, Steve asked us on Good Friday, what does the cross of Jesus Christ mean to you? And today, I want to ask a similar question is, what does the resurrection of Jesus Christ mean to you? Why do we rejoice that Jesus lives today? I mean, uh, someone rises from the dead, uh, good on them, right? Great, good for you. Why do I need to get excited about it? The passage that I've chosen is 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22. And um, if you don't have a Bible, I suggest that you grab one from the back. Because we will be looking at scripture and, I, and, and it's vital that we know what we're reading and, and, and understanding Because if we want to know why we celebrate the resurrection, then we need to go to the source. So if you have your Bibles or your device, please turn there, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22. And um, in case you don't have a Bible, I I have the, the text on screen so you can follow there if you want. This is what the holy and inerrant word of God says in the context of the resurrection. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. We can all say amen to that, can't we? That is such a great text. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Why celebrate the resurrection? I believe our passage gives us at least three reasons. And for the rest of our time, I want us to look at these three reasons. Number one, the resurrection secures our future. And I believe we can see this in verse 20. And life is worth the living just because he lives. I know 
My future is secure. Number two, the resurrection reverses our curse. I believe we can see this in verse 21. And number three, the resurrection instates or establishes our hope. And we will see this in verse 22. What I hope to show you is that these outcomes of the resurrection are not something that we could have achieved ourselves. It's not something that a better version of us could actually do. If we are to celebrate the resurrection, I believe we need to really understand how hopeless our situation is because then when hope comes, there's reason to celebrate. What we could not do now has been done for us. The reason to celebrate the resurrection is because without the resurrection, we have no future, we are still under curse, and we are in a hopeless situation. But before we can explore the, uh, these reasons for celebrating the resurrection, I want us to understand the context of this passage, of these three verses, and it's really important for us to get a grip of this, that the context is the gospel. If you know Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in all of Corinthians, Paul is dealing with several issues that the church at Corinth had. Should we get married? How do we do? What about tongues? And what about food sacrifice to idols? And, and he goes methodically, now concerning this, and now concerning this, and now concerning this, and you ask me about this, and now concerning this. And the reason why Paul is writing this is because in verse 12, uh, we see that there's an issue of skepticism or denial. And people are not skeptical about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, or they're not denying that Jesus rose from the dead, they're denying that believers will rise from the dead. They, they're saying that, yeah, Jesus rose, great, awesome, fantastic, but why are you saying that believers will rise? Where do you get the sense from that? And the text doesn't tell us why they thought that, but from other sources we can gather that they, the, the prevailing Greek philosophy of the day was that um, you know, matter or, or material is evil, and therefore the flesh is evil, and therefore why would something evil be raised from the dead? That doesn't make sense. That's a crazy idea. And so Paul in verse 12 is saying, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? So that's his main thrust of this chapter. Not really speaking about the resurrection of Jesus per se, but the resurrection of believers who follow Christ. And I believe that has great relevance for us because we are those who follow Christ. And therefore I think that this passage has great relevance for us if we are to truly understand why we are to celebrate the resurrection. And it's interesting that, that Paul presents his argument. He doesn't come out all guns blazing and say, no, 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 believers will rise. If you look in your Bibles in verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul presents the case for the resurrection of believers in the context of the gospel. And so I want us to understand first and foremost that resurrection is a gospel issue. 
There is no good news without the, God, without the resurrection. The resurrection is a critical component of the gospel. So after Paul says, I'm, you know, I, I'm talking about the gospel, then he goes into um, the connection between the resurrection and the facts around the resurrection. He reminds his readers, um, you know, after verse 3, of the historical facts. Christ died for our sins. This was according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. He appeared to Cephas, to the twelve, to me, to 500 people, on and on and on. He goes to cement the historicity of the, of the resurrection. And so there's a, there's a connection between the gospel and history. The gospel is historic. It is not poetic. It is not romantic. It is not imagination. It is historic. The good news is a part of history. And Paul is saying, this resurrection is part of the message that you believed, that saved you, that you continue to believe, that you continue to stand in. So how is it that some of you are saying that there is no resurrection from the dead? I mean, Jesus preached this himself, didn't he? In, um, in, in John 5, 28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Jesus says that the resurrection of both believers and unbelievers is a reality. So how come? How come some of you are saying that there is no resurrection of the dead? And then, in the, in the following verses, Paul uh, goes on to show four reasons why denying the resurrection is actually compromising the gospel. It's really critical for us to understand this. He says, verse 13, if you reject the resurrection of believers, you actually reject the resurrection of Christ. If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 14, if you reject the resurrection of believers, you undo the preaching of God's word. Our preaching is in vain. Verse 15, if you reject the resurrection of believers, you slander the character of God because we said that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if the dead are not raised. And verse 16 to 19, if you reject the resurrection of believers, you render the gospel meaningless because we are still in our sins. And so there's a very tight connection between the resurrection and the gospel. And you, you can't you can't pluck one thing out and hope that the rest of the structure will stand. It will completely crumble. So he's, he's establishing the fact that it's not just enough to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. You need to believe that you will be raised from the dead. That's the good news. If you, if you deny that believers will be raised in the future... You're actually denying that Christ was raised in the past. That's how serious this is as an issue. So without the resurrection of Jesus, there's no gospel, there's no good news, and there's nothing to celebrate. So keep that in mind now as we, as we go through our text. And look at the first reason to celebrate is that our future is secure. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Let's just look at that first part. But now Christ, 
But now, okay, we've established. We've established that Christ has been raised from the dead. What sort of a resurrection was it? I'm asking the question because there's a lot of, there's a lot of confusion out there. Christ rose in the imagination of the disciples. Christ rose as a feeling in the hearts of his people. Changed them forever. I kid you not, it's on YouTube. Don't watch it. The resurrection was a bodily resurrection. He rose corporeally, substantially, physically. How do we know this? Luke tells us the story. Two guys walking on the, on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Jesus suddenly appears to them. They don't know it's him. They're chatting with him. They're discussing. Oh, you know, you just, oh, they're sad. The Messiah's been killed. Uh, they were all expecting him to do great things. Uh, and then, you know, they invite him over to, to their home to have a meal. And um, they still don't know. But when he breaks bread with them, bang, eyes open, he disappears. And so, oh, did not our hearts burn with us when he was talking about all these things? So they rush again back to Jerusalem to tell their disciples. And when he's sharing the story with them, Jesus appears again. Now what does he say? But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. They thought this was an apparition. They thought he was a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. It was a physical resurrection. Bodily. We cannot, we cannot compromise this. Because it's easy to compromise because, oh, come on. You do really believe that someone actually rose from the dead as a person? Yes. Yes, he was God. So when Paul says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, he is referring to the bodily resurrection of Christ, flesh and bones. Why is this vital to understand? Why is it vital to the gospel? Because Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. What are first fruits? First fruits were, were the beginning of the harvest, the, the, the actual first fruits that, that appeared. Uh, in whatever harvest, whether it was wheat, whether it was fruit, vegetables, whatever, the first fruit were the, the first fruit that appeared in your crop. And you gave them to the Lord. Why? Because they were an indication of what was to follow. The first fruits were a guarantee of what was to follow. The first fruits were a prototype of what was to follow. And so Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits, a prototype, a model of what is sure to follow. He is the first fruits of what? Of those who have fallen asleep. What is that a reference to? Believers who have died. Christ is the first fruit. He is the model, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Christ is the model that is sure to follow. So when Paul is saying that the bodily resurrected Christ is the first fruits, he's saying that it's a guarantee. I want you to understand that. He's not saying this may happen or let's pray it happens. 
you've got to pray about this man, otherwise it's not going to happen. No. It's going to happen. Because Christ is the first fruit. The fact that Christ rose is indication, is guarantee of the fact that you will rise. Do you believe that? Does that bring you joy? Karen testified today about the joy at someone dying. Christians should be the best people in dying. We should. Why? Because Christ is the first fruit. When we see Him, we will be like Him. Christ is the first fruit. He is the model. If it happened to Christ... It will happen to all of us. And that's why we celebrate. We are joyful that Christ has risen as a model, a guaranteed forerunner of our own bodily resurrection. And just in case you had any doubts about the body of the resurrection of believers, Paul anticipates the question like he always does. Jump down to verse 35 in, in 1 Corinthians 15. But someone will say, obviously now, there's bound to be skeptics, someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man Adam became a living soul. The last man Adam became a life-giving spirit. And on and on he goes. So yes, the resurrection has a spiritual body, but it is a body. It's not a physical body, it's not, praise God, it's not what I have now. But it's going to be a glorified body, a heavenly body. But it's, it's a body, it's physical, like Christ had. And Paul explains the principle in verse 44. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. But it's a body. And like I said in, in 1 John 3, 2, we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because when we see him, we will see him just as he is. How will we see him? As a spirit? As a soul? No, we will see him as a body. We will be like him, having a body. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a model whose future fulfillment we eagerly await. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus is not merely a historical event. It is a historical event that guarantees a future event. We have to understand that. We, don't, we are not just happy because Jesus is alive. Yes, praise God, He is. But because He is alive, we will be alive as well. That's where it becomes personal. That's What does the resurrection mean to me? I will rise. Now someone might say, okay, I, I get, I get that. I get that um, believers will be raised bodily because Christ was raised bodily. I get that. I understand that. But why did Christ have to be raised bodily? Why could not he have just, God have just raised his soul from the dead? And the reason is, in verse 21, the reason for the bodily resurrection of Christ 
was to reverse the curse of death. It's the curse that we... Did you know that you were under a curse? And this is not fairy tale. This is not Sleeping Beauty. This is not Rumpelstiltskin or whatever. But we are under a curse. And Christ was raised bodily to reverse that curse. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. What man is Paul talking about? Adam, of course. By a man came death. By Adam came death. And so immediately we're taken back to Genesis, we're taken back to the garden, we're taken back to the fall of time, we're taken back to that, the time when, when everything was good, and then something happened to corrupt all of that. Paul is saying, if you want to understand the resurrection of Jesus, you first need to understand the death of Adam. You can't appreciate, you cannot get excited about what Jesus did if you don't get excited and are horrified by what Adam did. If you want to understand why Jesus rose physically, You need to understand that it was because Adam died physically. Why do I say that? Notice the phrases, since by a man came, and by a man also came. There is a correspondence here. There is a correlation, a one-to-oneness. Since by a man came death, by a man also came resurrection of the dead. There's something similar happening between what Adam did and what Christ did. Adam died physically, Christ rose physically. We already know that Christ rose physically because Luke tells us about it. So if Christ rose physically, then what Adam had to die physically. There's a one-to-oneness over here that you can't break. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead was bodily, but the death of the man was spiritual? No. For since by a man came physical death, by a man also came the resurrection, physical resurrection from the dead. Why did Adam die? The only answer is sin. He sinned against God. Sin caused death. Spiritual death. Physical death. We we have to get a grip of this. There is a physical aspect to sin. There is. It's not just a spiritual thing. It is a spiritual thing. It's an important spiritual thing. But it's not the only thing. There is a, a physical aspect to sin. Physical death was never God's intention for mankind, but when, when Adam sinned, that's when death came into the world as a consequence. It's not just Adam who died. Romans 5.12 Through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. This is a gospel issue. This is a universal pandemic. This is a global problem. 
Adam's sin did not just destroy him. Adam's sin destroyed humanity for the rest of time. That's how horrific that sin is. That's how far-reaching sin is. The reality of Christ's resurrection is tied inextricably, inextricably to the reality of Adam's fall. And that is why the resurrection is good news. Because it first gives us the bad news. And the bad news is that by a man came death. So it's not enough to say that Jesus rose physically from the grave. It's not enough to say that believers will also rise physically from the grave. We must say that Adam died physically because of sin. But Adam lived 930 years. Right? So that means his death was not instantaneous. God said the moment you eat of the forbidden fruit, you die. He ate of the forbidden fruit, he didn't die. So does that mean that there was no effect? No. What happened as a result of eating? You're out from the garden. What does that mean? You're banished from God's presence. God is the source of life. When you're banished from the garden, you're banished from the source of life. You have no life. That's the spiritual aspect of it. Spiritual death. So sin is the disease with fatal physical and spiritual consequences introduced by Adam and the cure for this disease with physical and spiritual is the resurrection. That is why we sing, Hallelujah, Jesus is alive. Because we will not only rise physically, we are not only victorious over death, we are victorious over sin. How do we know this? Romans 6. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly, of a surety, definitely, absolutely, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with the physical aspect so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, the spiritual aspect. Adam's curse is reversed. He plunged the rest of humanity for all time to come into physical and spiritual death which Christ has now reversed. We not only have the guarantee that we will overpower death by rising physically, we have the guarantee that we will overpower sin by living righteously. We will do it. Why? Because the Lord says, I will put my law in their heart. I will give you a new heart. But why, would, why do we need this? Why do we need this power, this resurrection power to be given to us? The answer is in the next verse and it gives us our final reason 
to celebrate. Our hope is instated. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Notice how this verse divides all of humanity into two categories. There is no middle ground, there is no gray area, there is no third way. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. That's, that's, that's your sphere of reality. That is, that is where you exist right now. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. There is there's no, there's no... I'm sorry, but that's what the text says. There is no fence here. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Where am I? Where am I? Because uh, if I'm in Adam, I die. That's not a good place to be. I want to be in Christ because then in Christ I will be made alive. But where am I? Do you know? Are you sure? Because if you are, then you will sing, Hallelujah, Jesus is alive. What does it mean to be in Adam or in Christ? It's not just the sphere in which you exist. It's also the controlling influence in your life. Being in Adam determines the trajectory of your life. Being in Christ determines the trajectory of your life. If I threw this at Jeff, for example, if I just threw this at him, where's it going to go? Not a trick question. It's going to go to Jeff, right? That's the law of motion, I suppose. A, a, a body that is at rest will continue to be at rest unless an external force displays it from rest or a body in motion will continue to be in the same motion with the same speed and velocity and direction unless acted upon by another body. Adam has thrown us towards hell. I want us to understand that. Adam's fall, Adam's sin has hurled us towards condemnation. Irretrievably. That is where we are going if we, 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 no, we don't have a choice, really. For in Adam all die. That's what it says. If you are in Adam, you die. You are on the highway to hell. I'm sorry, but that's what it says. You are in the, in the sphere of lostness and darkness and slavery. Or you are in the sphere of redemption and freedom and light. And here's the thing, every, every single one of us, every, every single human being that has ever lived is born physically in Adam. You don't get, there's a saying, you, you don't get a chance to pick your family, you only get to pick your friends. 
Well, you don't get a chance to be in Adam or Christ. You get, you are born in Adam. That was Adam's legacy. That was his gift to us. Death and condemnation. We just read Romans 12. Through one man, sin entered into the whole world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. That's Romans 5.12. Romans 5.15, by the transgression of the one, the many died. Romans 5.18, through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Romans 5.19, through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Wow. What did you do, Adam? Being born in Adam is a hopeless situation because in Adam, all die. In Adam, all die. Now, is that fair? Is it fair that you should die because of what someone else did? If you are condemned because of the actions of someone else, where's the justice in that? Right? That's a good question. It's a legitimate question. It's absolutely valid. Why should I suffer for someone else's wrongdoing? How should we answer? And I believe any honest answer, any, any adequate answer can only be developed once we understand the nature of sin. What is it about sin that it affected not just the person who committed the crime, but it affected everyone else? What is it about this disease? How come it is so potent that it can be only reversed by the resurrection of a person? What is this thing? What is this thing that demands that someone die? It, that it demands that God himself die? I found these words by Jeremiah Burroughs in his classic work titled The Evil of Evils or The Exceeding Sinfulness of Sin. Now, you know, people don't write about sin anymore. This, this, is, this is, I think, about 400 pages just on sin. It's just on sin. The nature of sin, what it does, uh, the outcomes of sin, um, how it is opposed to God's plan, how it is opposed to God's character, it's just on sin. It's like a textbook on, on cancer. And this is what he says. Sin is so evil that it is not capable of any good at all. Though the air is never so dark, yet it is capable of light. That would be a dismal darkness that was not capable of light coming into it. That which is bitter, though never so bitter, yet is capable of receiving that which will sweeten. That which is never so venomous is yet capable of such things as will make it wholesome. But sin is so dark that it is incapable of light. So bitter that there is no way to make it sweet. So venomous that there is no way to make it wholesome. If we truly grasped 
the sinfulness of sin, we would grasp the extent to which it not only corrupted Adam, but the extent to which it has corrupted us. If I want to rejoice in the resurrection, I need to first understand the desperate situation I'm in. Why am I in that desperate situation? Because someone else plunged me headlong towards condemnation. If we grasp the extent of our own corruption, we might be less inclined to accuse and question the justice of God. How can we how can we grasp the extent to which sin corrupted Adam? I want us to to look at the fall. So please turn with me to Genesis 3. I want us to look specifically at how a diminished view of sin can change the way we read scripture. I want us to grasp how insidious sin is. How vile and tricky it is. So I'm going to read my own version of Genesis 3 from verse 8. I want you to read in your Bibles what it says. I want you to focus on what I'm saying. A bit tricky, so listen to what I'm saying, but read in your Bible. Genesis 3, verse 8 onwards. Here we go. Has everyone got it? I need everyone to see this because it's not going to work otherwise. All right. Genesis 3, verse 8. This is how we read it when we have a diminished view of sin. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they ran up to him and said, Lord, we have sinned against thee. Show us how we can be pardoned. And the Lord hid his face from them and said, No, I cannot allow you in my presence for any longer, for I cannot tolerate sin. But the man pressed hard and said, Lord, hide not thy face from us. Forgive us. We have wronged you. We realize what we have lost and now we want it back. But we realize we cannot get it back for we have fallen so far from your grace and your standards of holiness. So cover our sins. And then the Lord relented, seeing the heart of man was seeking to be reconciled to him, and he killed an animal and covered them. You see the difference? That's what a diminished view of sin does. It turns us into the victim, and it turns God into the oppressor. Here's what we need to understand. Sin didn't change, didn't only change the way God saw Adam. It did. But sin didn't only change the way God saw Adam. Sin changed the way Adam saw God. Jesus didn't rise to make you a better version of you. He, rise, he rose to make you new. A better version of you is not going to cut it. A stronger, cleverer, more holy, more righteous, more compliant version of you is not going to get into heaven. You need to be a new creation.
Nicodemus comes, oh, you mean I'm supposed to be born again? What are you talking about? Have you not read? Do you not know? You have to be born again. You are born once into Adam. You are born again into Christ. The once born die. The twice born live. The effect of sin is, it, it's, not, it's not that it merely incurred God's wrath. It corrupted Adam's heart. Sin didn't merely weaken Adam's love for God. It actually made him resent God. And that's the sinfulness of sin. It reverses human affections. It reverses how God made us. We were made for worship. Sin corrupts that. It doesn't mean that we become less worshipful. It doesn't mean that we become less inclined. It actually means we turn away. And that, was, that is why the clarion call, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Why? Stop going down the path that you're on. Turn around. God is not the one hiding from Adam. Adam is the one hiding from God. Adam is not the one seeking reconciliation. He's actually seeking to blame shift. Hey, not me. This, this woman you gave me. It's not me. If reconciliation has to happen, then God has to make the first move. Why? Because Adam's not interested in reconciliation. He wants to hide. I mean, reconciliation requires an admission of guilt, right? I'm sorry, I did the wrong thing. Right? I mean, that's what we teach our kids. We need them to see the wrongness of their action. Adam's not seeing the wrongness of his action. He's blaming God. How can you have reconciliation with God if you're blaming God? Never forget who's doing the seeking and who's doing the hiding in Eden. Never forget who's antagonistic and who's showing grace. Why? Because what is true of Adam is true of us. That's the meaning of in Adam, all die. It means that in, left in our natural born state, we spiral further and further and further and further and further and further away from God. Unless He intervenes. Our natural born state, Ephesians 2 tells us, it makes us children of wrath. That is why we must be born again. We must be born not of the blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. For as in Adam all die, so also Christ, in Christ, all in Christ will be made alive. And that is the hope that we have. That is the hope that the resurrection has instated. It has put firmly into place. Why? That God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead, 
Even when we did not seek reconciliation, even when we were hiding, even when we were blame shifting, even when we blamed Him, made us alive in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It is not the work of man that any should boast. It is the work of God. What does it mean to be alive in Christ? It means to have a new heart, having a new will, a new disposition, having a new set of affections, having new desires. You actually want to worship God. You actually want to please Him. You actually want to do everything that Adam didn't do. You want to, you want to worship Him. I trust that's, that's what we were here today to do. We want to praise God for what He has achieved because of His resurrection. He is now alive. I am no longer under the curse. I have hope. My future is secure. That can only happen when I realize how desperate my situation was. How hopeless my future was. This is what Jesus prayed for in His high priestly prayer. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, just as we are one. I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known so that the love which you, with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. To be in Christ is to be in this beautiful intra-Trinitarian relationship. The Father and the Son, the Son and the Father, we and the Son, it's a beautiful thing. Being in Christ means to have the life of God in us. Do we understand that? The life that God has, the self-existing life that He has, the power that He has is in us. That is what it makes to be a new creation, not a better version of yourself. You become like Christ. You are not you anymore. Behold, the old has passed. It's not the old has become improved. It's not version 2.0. It's altogether new. The system has crashed and it has been rebooted. It is new. It's not even the same system anymore. This is what the resurrection has achieved for us. Romans 5, 8-10 Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death is no longer a master over Him, for the death that He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life that He lives, He lives to God, and we likewise. It's not there in the text, but that's what's implied. How can we be in Christ? Through faith. Ephesians 3.17 So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. We are in Adam by the virtue of the flesh. We become in Christ by virtue of faith. Do not walk by in the flesh. Walk in the flesh and you will do the things of the flesh. 
to walk by the Spirit, and we will do the things of the Spirit. We do not walk by sight, we walk by faith. Where do you stand today? I guess that's the question. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? What is the, what is the direction of your life? Where do you see yourself heading? Only you can answer that. Do you see, see yourself hell-bound or heaven-bound? We have to answer the question. What is, the, what is the overriding desire of your heart? Do you want to be a worshipper? Does worship get you excited? Does reading God's word get you excited? Are you, are you making time in your calendar and saying, Hey, I need to pray. Have you turned to the Lord in faith? Have you humbled yourself before Him to recognize that there is nothing that you can do to please Him, that, that your situation is so hopeless that unless He intervenes, you are doomed? That's why we celebrate the resurrection. It's not simply that Christ rose from the dead as a miraculous sign of the power of God, but rather that the miraculous working of God's power accomplishes so much for us. So much. I hope that, that when we sing these songs the next time, we are rejoicing all the more because we see the enormity of what has been achieved. We see our own helplessness in being unable to achieve this. Good Friday tells us that we are saved from the penalty of sin. Easter tells us that we are saved from the power of sin. Christ was raised because the Father accepted his sacrifice. And because he lives, we have power. It's not just a sentimental feeling, Jesus is alive, yeah, fantastic. No. His, his resurrection has done something in us. We are not the same because of the resurrection. If, if you are the same person, the resurrection isn't true in you. Why? Because God raised him up, Christ up, so that we would walk in newness of life. What Adam lost, what he destroyed, Christ has redeemed. What Adam frittered away, Christ has recovered. What Adam just sold down the river, Christ has brought back once and for all, conclusively. That's why we celebrate.
And so, how should we respond? What should our celebration look like? And I would suggest the last verse in 1 Corinthians 15. Because our future is secure, because our curse is reversed, because our hope is fixed, we ought to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil is not in vain in the Lord. You want to celebrate? That's what it looks like. We persevere because Jesus is alive. We do ministry because Jesus is alive. We hold fast, doggedly to our faith because Jesus is alive. We rejoice in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trial, because Jesus is alive. I just pray that that would be true in all of us. Shall we pray? Our gracious God and loving Father, we, we cannot imagine really the cost that your son paid for our sin. Father, if, if we are to truly get a grip of it, we must understand your infinite holiness. We must understand the infinite sinfulness of sin. And Lord, our, our limited imaginations cannot. But your word tells us that in Adam our situation is hopeless and irreversible and that is only in Christ that, can be made, that we can be made alive. We thank you that he rose to be the guarantee of our resurrection. We thank you, Lord, that because of him our future is secure. We want to thank you that because he was raised from the dead, that our curse is reversed that we can be victorious over sin. Where, O oh, death, is thy sting? Where, O oh, grave, is your victory? Is swallowed up in the resurrection. And we want to thank you, Lord, that because he lives, that we have hope that we will live. We just pray, Lord, that you would do a work of grace and mercy in our own hearts to make us new, to make us more like your Son. We ask in his name. Amen.